So now let's turn to something even more exciting, even more powerful than what we've just shared, and that is God's Word. Uh, but before we do that, may I invite you to just uh, quiet your heart and go to the Lord in prayer. Let me lead you in a time of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for giving us the freedom to worship you and to study your word without the fear of being persecuted, being beaten up, being imprisoned. But Lord, in the midst of this freedom, may we never diminish the impact of your word in our lives. Your word is indeed powerful. And so Lord, as we open up your word, may the Spirit be among us to comfort us, to challenge us, to convict us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Not long ago, I came across a rather shocking story. On November 15, 2017, this painting called Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci was sold at an auction for $450 million U.S. That's real money. $450 million U.S. dollars. That's shocking. But what made the story even more shocking was that shortly after it was sold, many art experts begin to testify that only portions of this painting was done by Leonardo da Vinci. In fact, most of them was done by someone else, perhaps his assistant, some no-name. Now that's a shocking discovery if you paid $450 million for it. And if that's not shocking enough, last September, so September 2018, when the painting was scheduled to go on public display at the Louvre in Abu Dhabi, the exhibition was suddenly cancelled without any explanation. And now, no one knows where this painting is. It has suddenly disappeared from the face of this earth. Now, we don't know how this story of this mysterious and controversial painting will unfold. But one thing we know for sure, and that is this. This painting has lost its purpose. Its purpose was to display the magnificence, the brilliance of its creator, Leonardo da Vinci. Now it's lost. Interestingly, the Bible talks about another kind of masterpiece, if you will. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes, For we, you and I, are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things He planned for us long ago. Now in this very short verse, we see a couple of things. First, he tells us of our identity, and then he goes on to tell us our purpose. So what's our identity? Well, according to Paul, as stated in this verse, we are God's masterpiece. Meaning we're not spare parts thrown together, we're not randomly put together without much thought, much thinking. Instead, we are masterpiece. Just as an artist would spend much passion, much time, much effort creating his masterpiece, such is the case for us. We are God's masterpiece. And here, Paul further elaborates that we were created anew in Christ Jesus. Now, in the original language, the verb form for created anew suggests an action that is ongoing, that is continual. So what Paul is saying is from the time you received Christ up until now, 
however long that has been, God continues to renew you, to perfect you into His wonderful masterpiece. So please, uh, the gong gong pop in the mist, don't say, oh, I'm old, I'm useless. You're not. God is continuing to renew you, to perfect you as His masterpiece. So my brothers and sisters, whether you feel it or not right now, you are God's masterpiece. And to help you remember, please turn to the people next to you and say this, you are God's masterpiece. Come on, you can do it with confidence. You're not lying. You are God's masterpiece. Indeed, we are God's masterpiece. But there is a second point that Paul makes here, and that has to do with our purpose. And it says it's to do the good things God planted for us long ago. Notice here, Paul is not just talking about normal good things like, uh, you know, getting good grades at school or finding a good job, making a good salary, finding a good spouse moving to a good home, preparing for good of retirement. Paul is actually not talking about those things. He's talking about what's good in the eyes of the Lord, according to his plan. In other words, Paul is really talking about our divine purpose. So whether you remember or not, you have a divine purpose. All of you have a divine purpose. So please turn to your neighbor and say, you have a divine purpose. I don't know, some of you are laughing. It's like, <laughs> you have a divine purpose? <laughs> you have a divine purpose. But the truth is, in the midst of our hectic lives, we often forget that, don't we? We run from one task to the next. We react to the circumstances without even thinking, or even just brief moments, that we are God's masterpiece, created with a divine purpose. And sooner or later, we become much like this painting by Leonardo. He lost its purpose. So the question I'd like us to think about today is how can we not lose sight of our divine purpose in the midst of our hectic schedule so that we can live out God's master plan for us? How can we not lose sight of our purpose in the midst of our busy lives so that we can truly live out God's master plan for us? And to do that, I want us to go back to a very familiar and beautiful story It's a story of Esther. As you will soon see, Esther was truly God's masterpiece. But at the same time, she almost, just almost, forgot her divine purpose. She almost did not fulfill God's master plan. But thankfully, in the end, she did fulfill. So my hope is as we look at her story, as we look at her life, it will become the lens through which we can examine ourselves. And begin to ask yourself today, are we living God's master plan? Interestingly, the book of Esther, in the book of Esther, the name God is not mentioned even once. Which is why some of the early church fathers say, ah, we can't put this book in the Bible. God's name is not even in there. But as you go through Esther, one thing you will see ever more clearly is that God's fingerprint is all over her life. Directing her, moving her, instructing her. And I think that's true for us today. I mean, unless you work in a seminary, but more likely than not, in your average work day, you don't talk about God, right? You don't say, hey, well, let's praise God today. Chances are, God's name is not mentioned in your day-to-day life. And yet, I want to tell you, God's fingerprint is all over your life. 
directing you and guiding you to live out his perfect will. The book of Esther uh, was written a long time ago, and it covers a story that, exp- that spans about a period of 10 years, from 483 to 473 BC. It took place in the Persian Empire in the city of Susa. And at the time, the Persian king had already given Jews the permission to go back to Israel if they wanted to. But sadly, many didn't. And I think because they had gotten so used to the pagan lifestyle, they had gotten so used to the pagan values, the pagan priorities, that they no longer are interested in going back to the home country, which they know it's God's desire. And I've often wondered if that's also the case for us. That you and I, because we live in a non-Christian world, perhaps we too have become so used to the pagan values, the pagan priorities, that we are no longer interested to think about what God might be doing and what he wants me to do in this world. Now the book of Esther, you can divide into three acts, like three acts in a play. And in each act, we can learn important lessons. In the first act, I've entitled The Masterpiece Being Prepared for the Master's Plan. The Masterpiece Being Prepared for the Master's Plan. Now, if you believe in luck, you're going to say in the first act of Esther's life, she was a lucky person. There were many, 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 many lucky coincidences in her life that took her to high places. Esther, whose name means star in Persian, was born an orphan. So that's not so good. But luckily, luckily, she had a cousin who loved her and adopted her as his own child. And not only that, ladies, Esther was born beautiful. That's lucky, right? She was beautiful and lovely. And as a result of that, she became one of the finalists in a nationwide search for the next queen. And she was then taken to the king's palace and then was brought under the care of one of the eunuchs, Hagar. And then luckily, somehow, she received favors from Hagar. Hagar really liked her for no apparent reason, liked her more than anybody else. And as a result, she got special beauty treatment. Now listen to this. Some of you like spas, right? Going to spa, maybe one hour, two hours, that's pretty good, right? 12 hours, you say, wow, that's amazing. Listen to this. Esther had 12 months of spa treatment. 12 months. I'm a guy and I think that sounds pretty good. And not only that, she had special food. She was given seven maids, seven helpers, all to herself. I mean, imagine that. I wouldn't even know what to do with seven people who would become my personal assistant. But she was given seven maids. And not only that, it doesn't stop here. Esther could ask for anything she wants, any clothing, any jewelry. Imagine she going down Robson and say, I want that, I want that, I want that. Not having to pay the bill. She just had to ask for anything she wants. That's lucky, right? And then when the king finally met her, of all the most beautiful people, ladies from the nation, the king loved her the most. The king was delighted with her and he set his royal crown right on her head and declared a queen, and even made that day a public holiday, and continued to honor her. And even after she was made queen, the king continued to love her. He would say to her, Honey, well, maybe not honey, but he said, What's your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. 
looking at the wives in the mist. How many of your husband would actually say that regularly? Honey, whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you, even if it's half of my kingdom. Many of you are looking with eyes of hope and jealousy, right? She was one lucky person, wouldn't you say? I would say so. Everything seems to be going her way. But as one writer wisely pointed out, there are no lucky coincidences. Only God's designed opportunities. Let me say that again. There are no lucky coincidences. Only God's designed opportunities. You see, all the good things that happened to her was not because she was lucky, but they were God's designed opportunities. God would then use all those things one day so that she can bless others. In other words, God blessed her to bless. Sounds familiar? God blessed Esther to bless others. And indeed, as the story unfolds, you will see more and more clearly how God blesses her, and not only that, uses her to bless many people, including saving the lives of thousands and millions of people. And by the way, since you and I are God's masterpiece, I'm going to propose to you that nothing has happened in your life it's also lucky coincidence, but rather God's design opportunities. I want to propose to you all that you have experienced, all that you have right now, both the ups and the downs, are not random chances. But somehow God is using that for his purpose, for his master plan. Some of you have been to VCBC long enough to know that one year we uh, went through the pur- purpose-driven life, right? And we were asked to examine our shape. Okay, not your body shape, because that would be a pretty miserable exercise for me. But anyways, shape stands for, is an acronym. That stands for uh, five different things. First, your spiritual gifts. So what's your spiritual gift? I think all of you have gone through some kind of inventory. But what's your spiritual gift? Is it a gift of teaching? Is it a gift of leadership? Is it a gift of caring? What is it? And your heart, what's in your heart? What keeps you up at night? What are you excited about? What are you passionate about? Who are you passionate about? Is it a certain particular ethnic group? Is it a type of artwork? Is it craft? What are you passionate about? God gave you those passions for a reason. And then your abilities, what are you good at? Some of you people are amazing at fixing things. I know a guy, I can give him anything, whatever shape it's in, he'll come back and it's all in one piece. Sometimes I wonder if he went out and bought a new one. But he has good abilities to fix things. Well, what about you? Are you good at taking photos? Are you good at, you know, designing bulletins? What is it? And how might God be using that for his purpose? And your personality. Are you introvert? Are you extrovert? For those introverts, you can think clearly. You can think deeply and thoroughly. And God can use that. And if you're an extrovert, you know what? When you walk into a room, the room lights up. My wife's an extrovert. It's like everyone goes to her and kind of forgets about me. But that's okay. Because she can then use that for God's glory. So my question for you is, oh, there's one more thing. Experience. Some of you have lived longer than others, but all of you have some kind of life experience, both good and bad. And how might God be using that for his glory? Recently, a colleague of mine shared with me, she's a co-teacher at our school, She said ever since she was a little girl, she got to travel around the world and just meet people from different countries, from different ethnic backgrounds. And that experience has really helped her connect with our students who are also from different countries. 
you can just really connect with them. So what has your life experience been? The good and the bad. How might God be using that? So based on your shape, how can you live out God's master plan? What might your divine purpose be? And the follow-up question to that, perhaps a more painful one, is this. Even when you know what your shape is, the important question is, are you faithfully living out your shape, doing what you're created for? Or are you so busy day in and day out, running from one thing to the next, accomplishing things that seem important, but really has no eternal value? This brings me to a kind of a neat story I came across. Uh, coffee drinkers, any coffee drinkers here? Yeah, you'll appreciate this. There's a fellow by the name of Raphael Antonio Lo- Lo- Lozano. He had a mission in life, and it was to visit every single Starbucks in the world. Every single Starbucks, okay? So when he started his missions in 1997, there were 1,304 Starbucks worldwide. But as you know, Starbucks tend to bloom and grow like wildflowers, right? So by October uh, 2005, this guy had visited 4,918 Starbucks in North America and 213 Starbucks around the globe. So well over 5,000 Starbucks he has visited. Sounds pretty impressive, right? Unfortunately, by then, Starbucks had well over 6,000 outlets around the world in 37 countries. So he finally gave up. He said, I can't do this. And interestingly, when he was interviewed by New York Times shortly after, he made the following confession. Every time I reach a Starbucks, I feel like I've accomplished something, when in fact, I've accomplished nothing. What about you and I? I don't think many of you are running after the next Starbucks necessarily. I don't think that's the case. I'm sure you have some lofty goals. Maybe it's to expand your business, beef up your bank account, climbing the corporate ladder, maybe trying to get younger and look better. Uh, Maybe it's to move to a bigger house or send your kids to better school. The list goes on and on. All of us have lofty goals. While none of these goals are necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but if that's not what you're created for, if that's not what God has wired you for, your chase your race is going to be futile. One day you're going to look back at all your so-called accomplishments with a deep sense of regret. You see, true fulfillment comes not from reaching your life goals, but rather from living out the Master's plan. Let me say that again. True fulfillment comes not from reaching your own life goals, but rather living out the Master's plan. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think all of you then should now quit your job, come to Singapore, become a missionary. No, that would be the wrong thing to do, and I hope you don't do that. Because you may very well be exactly where God wants you to be. In the business world, at homes, and in the community. But the question you must ask yourselves is this. How can I live out my shape, my God's divine design, in the very place that God has placed me? So maybe God has made you a business person. So are you using your role to teach others what it means to be a faithful steward, to live with integrity? Are you showing people that it's good to make money as long as you use that money to bless others, to be a generous giver? Or maybe God has made you a teacher. 
Are you using your role just to teach knowledge? Or are you demonstrating and living out godly characters so that the students under your care will notice something different about you and would be curious about God? Or maybe God has made you a mom and dad, a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad. But are you using your role to teach your kids what unconditional love looks like so that they can long for the unconditional love from God? Perhaps God has made you a student. But are you using your role as a student just to show people that good and good grades is all that's important? Or are you showing them that life is more than just getting good grades, but, to ra- but rather to understand how God has created you and how to live out that design? So the question is, are you living out your shape, doing what you're created for? Or are you just chasing after the next Starbucks? Accomplishing something when in fact you're really not accomplishing anything. This takes us to Act, uh, act 2 of uh, Esther's life, which I've entitled The Masterpiece Neglecting the Master's Plan. You see, while Esther was enjoying all this rise to fame, there was a bad thing, dark plot that was happening behind the scenes. There was a guy by the name of Haman. He was a powerful guy. In fact, he was second in command. But sadly, he was an evil and prideful person. He wanted everyone to bow to him. But when... Uh, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, refused to bow to him. He wanted him killed. And not only that, he wanted all the Jews to be killed. So when Mordecai discovered that, he was obviously panicking. And he went and sent a note to Esther, who is now the queen of the country, and said, Esther, you've got to do something. I guess in his mind he's thinking, hey, God has put you in such a powerful place. You can talk to your husband, the king, and stop all this. That's what he expected. But look what was Esther's reply to him. Esther told Hatak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter and the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. What she's saying essentially, sorry cousin, can't help you. You see, the king has not called me. So I cannot really help you. Or in Singapore we would say, cannot laugh. So why would Esther not step up at such a crucial time? Looking at her responses, I think you see two things. First of all, she was focusing on what's good while losing sight of what's great. She was focusing on what's good while losing sight of what's great. You see, she had a good life. I mean, she was the queen. She had all the perks and all the benefits that came with that. But if she goes and talks to the king and starts bad-mouthing the second-in-command, she may cross the king and she may lose everything. And not only that, according to tradition, if she shows up in the palace without the king summoning her, she'll be doomed. So she didn't want to give up all the good things that she was having. She wanted to keep all that. And I think we can actually sympathize with her, can't we? I mean, we want to give... Bible character, bad time. Oh, you should have done this. But when we look at ourselves, I think we're very much the same way. I mean, imagine you've worked so hard for this job or for this life-saving or for this particular promotion, and then all of a sudden, someone, even God himself, tells you, hey, you've got to do something else. I think you're a little bit hesitant to give up all the goodness that you have built up, that you have planned for. Let me just confess, Josephine and I really like Vancouver. 
In fact, we love Vancouver. Vancouver is a really, really, really good place to live. And we had a really good life here. But at the same time, God called us into Southeast Asia. I don't know why, but he did. And I can tell you, had we held on to the good things that we had here, we would never have experienced the great things that he showed us in these past four years. So the one thing we can learn from Esther's story is this. Be careful not to focus on what's good and lose sight of what's great. Don't focus on what's good, all the while losing sight of what's great. And there's a second reason why I think Esther didn't want to help Mordecai, and that is this. She was imposing finality on an infinite God. She was imposing finality on an infinite God. She was probably thinking to herself, Hey cousin, king hasn't called me. That pretty much is the end of the road. That's my limit, you know that. But what she didn't realize was, although her hands were tied, God's hand was never tied. Her hands were tied, but God's hand was never tied. And I think sometimes we feel like Esther, don't we? When some things don't go right, when things don't seem all that great, we immediately want to just give up. and Say, hey, my hands are tied. But then we worship a God who is infinite, whose hands are never tied. I can't explain to you why, how one of my students came to Singapore with only $30 in his pocket, but he didn't starve, he didn't end up homeless. In fact, he finished his degree after three years, graduating without any student loans. I can't explain that, except maybe because we worship an infinite God. I can't explain how one of our graduates went back to his home country where Christians are persecuted, imprisoned, even killed. But even in a very short time, the church that he planted multiplied 20-fold. I can't explain that, except maybe because we worship an infinite God. I can't explain how when in Myanmar we prayed for this HIV lady who we were convinced was going to die that night, only to learn next morning she not only recovered, but began cooking and cleaning the house and serving the other ladies. She was completely well. I can't explain that, except maybe we worship an infinite God. I can't explain how the son of a well-known Oman, a Jewish, uh, not Jewish, a Muslim teacher, became one of the most powerful evangelists of the gospel in Singapore. After he saw a vision in, in a dream where Jesus turned his life completely around. I can't explain that, except maybe because we worship an infinite God. So, my brothers and sisters, let's not impose finality on an infinite God. And thankfully, although Esther almost missed the boat, almost forgot her divine purpose, she had a cousin who reminded her. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther and said, don't think for a moment just that because you're in the palace, you escape when all the Jews are killed. If you keep quiet for such a time as, uh, at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows? Perhaps you were made a queen for such a time as this. In this single verse, we see three things. We see a blessing. The blessing is deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. In Mordecai's faith, even if Esther dropped the ball, he knew God will still fulfill his plan. He had no doubt whatsoever that God's plan will prevail. And that should be a comfort to all of us, right? Sometimes we feel, oh, unless so-and-so is made the senior pastor or the ministry leader, 
this ministry or this church will fail? I don't think so. As long as we recognize that God is ultimately the one in charge, none of his master plan will fail. God will deliver us. There's a second thing we see, which is a curse, and that is this. Esther, if you refuse to intervene and try to live out your divine purpose, you will be doomed. You will be punished. And I think we should take that, take heed to that warning for us. Especially when we feel like just doing our own thing and forgetting about what God has in mind for us. And then finally, there's a challenge. And the challenge is this. Who knows if God has made you queen for such a time as this? He's saying, wake up, Esther. Look at all that God has blessed you with. You were made for such a time as this. Don't drop the ball. Live out God's divine purpose. And I believe what Mordecai said to Esther not only encouraged Esther, but also encouraged the Jews and ultimately encouraged those of us who are are reading it today in an inspired word. So my question for you is this. How can I step up to the Master's plan? How can I put all these pieces together, all that God has blessed me with, and begin living out my divine purpose. Remember, just as Esther was, will be judged, or would be judged for her inaction, we too will be judged for our inaction. So please turn to your neighbor and say this, God made you for such a time as this. Now, although Esther was hesitant at first, but thankfully she had a cousin who brought her back. And this leads us to the last mass brilliant act of her life, which is masterpiece fulfilling the master's plan. So after being confronted by her cousin Mordecai, she said this, Go and gather people, all the Jews of Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or night or day. My maid and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, I will go to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Notice she did two things here. She didn't say, ah, now I'm courageous, I'm just going to go and do this. No, she took time to fast, to pray, and seek God's direction. And I think we do well if we spend more time praying than meeting. You know, a typical church I would talk to, I would ask them, uh, if you look at the people coming to a prayer meeting, how does that compare to the number of people coming to your monthly meeting, your membership meeting? Most churches would be embarrassed to answer that because very few people go to their prayer meeting. But there's a second thing we see here. She said after she prayed and got direction, she acted. She moved and did something. You know, sometimes we, when we don't want to help somebody, what do we do? We'll pray for you, right? We'll pray for you. That's such a convenient way to say, hey, I don't want to, not to say, but Basically what he's saying, I can't really help you, but we'll pray for you. But not for Esther. After she prayed, she went. And as a result of her faithfulness, we saw three different things. First of all, when she approached the king, not only was the king upset, the king was happy to see her and even told her, hey, what do you want? I'll give you anything, even half of my kingdom. That night, as luck would have it, if you still believe in luck, God caused king to have insomnia. And he said, oh, I'm so bored. I'm going to get someone to read from the history book. Maybe that will help me wake up. Well, of all the history books this guy could have pulled out, he pulled out the one that's about Mordecai. 
how he had stopped an assassination attempt on the king years ago. But the king realized I had not rewarded this guy, so I must do something good for this guy. And then the last thing we saw was the king's rescue. After Esther revealed to the king Haman's evil plot, the king was furious and he stopped the plot. And eventually Haman was executed and all the Jews were saved. So that's the story of Esther. In the first act, we see how God prepared her. Remember, there are no lucky coincidences. Only God's design opportunities. That's the same for your story. And Esther almost neglected her divine purpose, just as we might neglect our divine purpose, because we are looking at the good while losing sight of the great, or we impose finality on an infinite God. But thankfully, God, using Mordecai, brought Esther back on track, and she was able to fulfill the Master's plan. Claude Alexander, the bishop, uh, in the state, wrote this. There's a purpose for you being here. You're meant to answer something, solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something, translate something, interpret something, say something, uh, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, share something, overcome something, and in doing so, you improve the lives of others under the power of God for the glory of God. I think there's something in there that you can do. So my challenge for you this week is this. What is one thing you can do to begin living out your purpose? One baby step you can take. Maybe it's just to spend time in a retreat and reflecting on how God has wired you and how he can use that for his glory. Or maybe it's to do something that God has instilled in your heart for a long time. And finally you say, I'm not going to run away anymore. I'm going to do this. What is that one thing that God has placed in your heart? And then say to the Lord, I'm your masterpiece. May I fulfill your master's plan. So let me invite you to just bow for a few moments here and just reflect on that. Reflect on how you can live out God's masterpiece, a uh, master plan, given that you are God's masterpiece. I just want to close by reading you a benediction from Richard Harvison, who is the former chaplain of the United States Senate. And he used this following benediction at, at the end of each of and every service that he held in the Senate. And this is what he said, and this will be my benediction for you today. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in you and your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of His Spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in His grace, His love and His power. In the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.